Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall be angry with his brother without a cause, shall be in the danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee up to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the utmost farthing. May God bless to us the reading from his word. And to his... Well now, dear friends, it is my very great privilege to be invited to address you this evening. And I would thank Mr. John Byrne for his gracious words of welcome to me, of which I am entirely unworthy. I have many reasons for loving Newcastle on Tyne, and it is a joy indeed to see faces of some whom I have met before. The subject has been announced. It is the sin of murder. Thou shalt not kill. Or, if you like, in more modern language, you shall not commit murder. Now many would express surprise that we are gathered here this evening to talk about the subject of murder. And I can imagine that a critic might come into our midst who is not sympathetic to our attitude to life as a whole and he might say, life is grim enough. Why not talk about something a little more cheerful? This attitude, I'm afraid, to serious subjects is all too common today. Whatever the reason may be, many hold the philosophy that the best way to handle really serious problems in life 
is to turn up the music a little louder on the gramophone and to pour out another glass of champagne. In other words, many cannot face really serious subjects and so they look the other way and they pretend that the problems are not there. This, I'm afraid, is true, as many of you will know, of such subject as illness, bereavement, death, crime, the sufferings of others, and eternity. And into that category comes the subject allocated to us this evening, the sin of murder. But evils do not go away simply because men prefer to turn away their eyes from them. The evils of life are there and they are real. The challenge is to face them and to try to seek an honest and a correct method to put them right. And thankfully, you and I and others are not left to our own devices in seeking a solution to the problem of murder, crime and violence. God in his goodness, we believe, with all our hearts has given to us his word and we regard the Bible as his final revelation and a completed revelation. And I make no apology whatsoever, as indeed you would not expect me to do, for saying that my attitude this evening will be developed not from human philosophy, not from party political interest, but from a serious consideration of what God is saying to us in the Bible. Now, if time permits, I shall look at the theme under these six headings. First, I want to speak about the Bible's attitude to murder in general. Second, I shall look at murder in the context of the moral law of God. Third, I wish to speak of the seriousness of murder as seen in its context. Fourth, I shall speak of biblical considerations that show us the gravity of murder. Fifth, I shall speak of Christ's elucidation of the sixth commandment, which was read to us by Mr. Byrne just a moment ago, as he expounds it, in, as, as the Lord expounds it, in the Sermon on the Mount. And sixthly, if time permit, I would like to speak of the biblical case for capital punishment. First of all, the Bible's attitude to murder. The first murder in history cannot be known simply by turning to the historians and the philosophers. The Bible, however, does tell us of the very first murder which ever occurred in the history of the world. You will know from your study of the scriptures that this is to be read in Genesis 4. And I'm going to read you just a verse or two, which records for us this first murder of history. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him or murdered him. 
And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he, that is God, said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Now I bring to you that uh, brief summary of the first murder of history because from the very start the Bible reveals to us some of the great principles which show us the nature of murder and uh, its ill desert. Let me therefore comment on those words. First, let us note that the first murder of history was fratricide. It was not the killing of someone at a distant relation to the person guilty, but it was the killing of a brother. You see, murder is no respect of persons or of near relationships, and this is reflected as a fact all throughout history. Unbelievable as it may seem to a sane and thinking person, husbands sometimes kill their wives and wives their husbands, parents their children and children their parents, and close friends and associates will kill one another. Murder, in other words, is pitiless, even to those most deserving of pity from us. Now this, of course, is an infringement at first sight of the great principle that God has given to us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. We are told in Scripture that there is a golden rule, and the Bible states this golden rule both negatively and also positively. Negatively, we are told to do nothing to our neighbor that we would not wish him to do to us. And stated positively, we are to do to our neighbor what we would wish him to do to us. Now murder is premeditated. Cain, whose murder is recorded here, was offended in that God approved of his brother's sacrifice, but not of his. He was mortified to think that his younger brother would be approved by God in his religious worship and that he himself should be disapproved of. And so we see here that murder begins with an evil motive in the heart. It begins, in other words, with envy or with pride or a hurt feeling. And this leads to the fomenting of anger and fury, which themselves become the propelling motive for men to murder one another. All murder, in other words, begins in the heart and in the thoughts and in the intentions. Again, let me comment. The murderer we see from this passage is always answerable to God. The narrative makes this very clear. Where is Abel thy brother? exclaims the Lord. And this shows us that the guilt of murder is registered in the conscience of those who are guilty. 
Sooner or later the murderer will face God and answer for his crime, either in this life or that which is to come. And nowhere do we see this more clearly shown than in the tragic and devastating case of Judas Iscariot, who, having betrayed our Lord, his master, for 30 pieces of silver, then is convicted of his own conscience. He exclaims, I have betrayed the innocent blood and immediately throws away the 30 pieces of silver and goes out and hangs himself. He cannot face his own conscience. And then again in the case of Cain, we see that this is one of the factors at work, that the murderer will try to excuse his crime. With consummate cheekiness, Cain turns to God and says, Am I my brother's keeper? Lies and cover-up are the natural consequence of the sinner's fear and his sense of guilt. He will try any avenue he can to avoid confession and he will concoct any alibi which is to hand. Then let us notice that the blood of murdered persons cries out to God for vengeance to be taken on the murderer. It is God himself who announces to the guilty man Thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Amazing that murder entered into the race, the human race, in the second generation. But it has never been expunged from that day to this. Moving on a little in the revelation God has given us, we come down to the times of the flood. Between Adam and the flood... I believe you will compute there were ten generations, which, bearing in mind the longevity of those who lived in these days, which is nearly a thousand years in many cases, it represents perhaps about a thousand years, more or less. By this time, the world had become extremely violent. As God looked upon the world, its violence was so offensive to him, we are told in Genesis chapter 6, It grieved the law that he had made man. The earth was filled with violence. And as we well know, God brought a signal judgment upon the world. Only Noah and those with him in the ark were spared. But after the flood, God gave this pronouncement concerning murder. This was not given in the first thousand years or so of the human history. But immediately after the flood, when Noah was reinstated on the earth and his family again were instructed to be fruitful and to multiply and to propagate and to subdue the earth, amongst the regulations and stipulations that God gave to Noah was this, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Now let me comment like this. No matter how much God may punish men's sins by flood or war or famine or earthquake or other judgment, this evil remains still in the heart of man. Murder cannot be cured by acts of parliament, however excellent they may be in themselves. 
and murder cannot be prevented by increasing the number of police, however desirable it may be to have their number increased. Both of these measures are needed in society, but murders will go on to the end of time, alas, alas, because of the heart of man. The heart of the problem concerning murder is, of course, the problem of the human heart. And the word of God here in this passage I have just read to you, which comes from Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, teaches that the murderer, according to God's revelation, the murderer ought to be, deserves to be, put to death. It is the only proper and adequate punishment for his crime, says God. And this revelation at the beginning of the, of the Bible's history, and just after the flood, makes it clear that society ought never to allow the murderer to live. No penalty short of capital punishment is adequate to deal with the crime of murder. Now you and I will be familiar with some of the objections which even right-hearted and good-hearted people will give us in answer to our statement that capital punishment is required by God. I passingly mention two. First, people will say that two wrongs do not make a right. They will say to us, how can it be right to put another man to death when already one has been put to death? Now that is an objection, of course, which people, I believe sincerely, will lodge against the sentence of capital punishment. Another objection is this, that it is possible when bringing a conviction for murder against a man, it is possible that you may be convicting an innocent man and if capital punishment is your sentence, you will be putting to death a man who is innocent. It may be that in the question time, that may be something you would wish to take up, but I say that these are common objections to the biblical revelation that whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. You see, according to the word of God, murder is not just a civil crime, but also a religious crime. God makes it clear. Man is made in the image of God. And if anyone wishes to have a definition of what the image of God is, it means not that man has arms and legs and a body. That has nothing to do necessarily with the image of God. The image of God consists in knowledge, righteousness and holiness and the possession of an immortal soul. I shall come back to that point. So to murder a person is to make an assault upon the divine image. It is to strike at the image of God in man. And for this, says God, there is no adequate or appropriate penalty short of judicial death. This view is maintained, as I hope to show you, throughout the whole Bible. Now, my second heading is this, murder and the moral law of God. Murder is an infringement of one of the laws of God. The sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. And the word used in the Hebrew language, which of course is the language in which the Old Testament is inspired, the word in the Hebrew means murder. It doesn't mean kill in general. It is specifically murder. Deliberate and intentional killing of your neighbor. 
those who are interested in the Hebrew will know that the word is ratzach. It is to murder someone, not to kill them accidentally. It doesn't refer to homicide in general, therefore, but to intentional man-slaying. As we shall see, unintentional man-slaying is not murder. There must be in murder a motive to do harm. Now, murder, like all other sins, is to be evaluated by its seriousness. And in the measure in which it is an action done in defiance of the moral law of God, it is a, an infringement of God's requirement for man's life in this world. The life of man is sacred. No one has a right to put any man to death apart from God or such parties as God gives authority to put persons to death. No others have that right. So what I'm arguing now is that murder is a breaking of the moral law of God. And that brings me to make certain observations about the moral law. There are in the Old Testament and in the New, but especially in the Old Testament, there are recognized to be three forms of law. There is first moral law, then secondly there is what we call ceremonial law, and third there is judicial law. We must distinguish those three strands of law. All the great theologians that we recognize as being worth reading and studying, will recognize that there are these three, moral law, ceremonial law, judicial law. It's very important that we should understand those distinctions. Now, ceremonial law has to do with those ceremonies in worship which God commanded to be observed from the days of Moses to the day when Christ should die and fulfill all those ceremonies and types by his own life and death. So in that Mosaic period from Moses to the resurrection of Christ and the day of Pentecost, during that period amongst the Jewish people, God had instituted ceremonies, forms of worship. Now all of those forms and ceremonies passed away with the coming of the New Testament age. It is a sin today to offer incense to God because he has forbidden it. It was commanded in the Old Testament, forbidden in the New. Now, with regard to the judicial law, what we're referring to here, which is a second form of law I mentioned, the judicial law refers to those punishments, those penalties, which God prescribed for crimes of various kind in that period between Moses and Christ. And these were the punishments attaching to the various crimes and sins which were committed by the Israelites in that period. For instance, in that age, God prescribed capital punishment for a wide range of sins and crimes. It was prescribed, for instance, that a person would be put to death for adultery at that time. Again, it was prescribed that a person would be put to death for witchcraft at that time. And uh, if a child, a young man or a woman, 
was so bent on disobedience to his or her parents that they could in no sense be controlled, then the parents were commanded by God to take that young person and with the elders of the district they were to place him against the wall and stone him to death. That was the way God required the disobedient son or daughter to be dealt with in Old Testament times. Now I mention these examples because all of these penalties are now abrogated in the New Testament. God does not require in the New Testament age capital punishment for adultery or witchcraft and I'm afraid this is where the Salem witchcraft movement in North America in the late 17th century was a tragic mistake. It was a failure to understand the requirement of God in this New Testament age and he does not require capital punishment for disobedience to one's parents. But God does still require capital punishment for murder. And I shall give you some of the arguments for that as we proceed, which is not just yet. Now, the Ten Commandments, taking them very briefly as a whole, require simply one thing of man. And that is that we should love. First of all, we should love God. The first four commandments deal with our love to God. The next six deal with our love to one another. And there's a wonderful wisdom about the way God has ordered these Ten Commandments. The first commandment tells us the object of our love, God. The second tells us the method whereby we should worship and love him, no idolatry. The third, the spirit of worship and of love, that is, that we should never take his name in vain. The fourth commandment, the time in which we should worship him, that is, a Sabbath day in the Old Testament, the last day of the week, the New Testament, the first day of the week, changed by the resurrection of Christ. And then the second table of the law deals with our duty to one another. And beginning with the fifth commandment, which speaks about our various degrees of authority within society, parental authority, government authority, employers over employees, within that context we are given these specific commands by God, first not to kill we are to regard the life of our neighbor. Second, we are to regard the sexual purity of our neighbor, the seventh commandment. Then we are to respect the property of our neighbor. Then we are to respect the reputation of our neighbor. Thou shalt not bear false witness. No gossiping to the man's detriment. If there are any who are editors of uh, tabloid newspapers, I hope you're listening. Be careful what you do with other people's reputations, even though you have a great deal of capital behind you and you can destroy men with your editorials. Remember you're answerable to the great God for what you say about a man and his reputation. So I quickly run through all these commands in the context of the sixth commandment to show you that the sixth commandment deals with what is the worst and most terrible way in which you can demonstrate your hatred to your neighbor. There are many ways of demonstrating hatred to your neighbor, but the most terrible of them all is to put him to death. The Lord Jesus Christ makes it very clear in the reading that we had in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 26, that we should never suppose for a moment that the moral law has been abrogated by his coming. Nor should we ever dream to think that the moral law will be abrogated in any time to come. The ceremonial law has been abrogated. The judicial elements of the Old Testament law, for the most part, 
have been abrogated. I make a qualification because there are certain things in the judicial law which are perpetual. But the moral law is eternal. Not simply is the moral law right for the Old Testament or even for both Old and New Testament. The moral law is eternal and perpetual and it has to be because the moral law is not founded on the will of God but on the character of God. The moral law is what it is because God is what he is. Now that's not true of the ceremonial law. God required that you should offer this beast, but not that beast, this bird, but not that bird in sacrifice. And that was based upon the arbitrary will of God. But the commandments which we call moral are not based upon the arbitrary will of God. They are not positive laws, but moral laws grounded in the very character and nature of God himself. And the moral law is of great use to us Theologians give us three special uses of the moral law. The first one is for civil use. In other words, governments ought to frame their laws. Society ought to frame its conduct in terms of these ten commandments. God requires it of society and of governments. Second, the moral law is of great use in preaching in order to convince sinners of their sinfulness that they might see Christ as their saviour. And thirdly, the moral laws of great use to the Christian as a rule of life. Now, my third heading is this. The seriousness of murder seen in its consequences. I have already spoken of the heinousness of murder as an explicit act of defiance towards the will of God, our maker and judge. I come now to speak of other aspects of the seriousness of murder. It is an expression of the greatest form of hatred, as I have said before, that man can show to his fellow man. Other sins wound our neighbor more or less to a greater or lesser degree. Adultery takes away a person's purity. Theft is property. And uh, damaging of reputation in the case of gossip. But murder removes a man's life from him. Only God can give life. And only God has the right to remove it, except that he has delegated this right in very special circumstances to competent persons. And then again, the seriousness of murder must be pondered in this way, that the murderer sends the soul of his victim immediately to appear before God for judgment. The murderer's knife or noose, or gun, or bomb, immediately assigns immortal souls to the judgment seat of God, where they would immediately appear without preparation. Now Shakespeare is quite right in Macbeth when he portrays the situation in this way. Let me quote a line or two of Shakespeare's Macbeth. The scenario was that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had now framed their purpose of killing Duncan in order to inherit his position. And as they are about their dastardly deed in the background, a doleful bell sounds, and Macbeth cries these words, Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. And that is 
not just Shakespeare, that is true. That is the word of God. That is sound doctrine. That's what murder does. It summons a man or woman at once to heaven or to hell. Now, murder would be infinitely less serious as a crime were it not that man has an immortal soul. And this is where the modern mind is so grievously at fault. We must never equate a man with a beast. When a beast dies, it is gone, it is finished, it is stuffed out. But when a man dies, he is not gone, he is not snuffed out. When a man or a woman dies, or even a child, their soul immediately goes to another world, there to face God. The the theory of annihilation is not taught in the Bible. The righteous, says the Bible, will live in heaven forever. The unrighteous, says the Bible, will suffer torment in hell fire forever. These are extremely serious subjects. Christ's words are these, Their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched on those, he means, who die in a state of unforgiven sin. Now, even some evangelicals have sadly dreamed of a doctrine called conditional immortality, in which they imagine that the wicked will simply be snuffed out. Oh yes, say they, the righteous will go to heaven, but the wicked will be snuffed out. Not so. The same word for eternal life is used by Christ to refer to eternal punishment. The Greek word, if you want it, is ionios. It will go on and on. Just as life in glory for the Christian will be eternal, ionios, so punishment in hell, conscious suffering in hell, will be ionios. And it will get worse with the progress of time. Because even in hell, the sinner goes on sinning. And in hell, as he sins, the more so his punishment increases and his terror the more terrible. So I say these things apropos this subject. The whole teaching of the Bible is that men need to prepare for death. But what murder does is immediately summons a man out of this world and gives him no time whatsoever to prepare to meet God. So I say to you, my dear friends, as the knowledge of the Bible goes down in society, it is inevitable that murder will be regarded more and more lightly. Let me give you some statistics. I have these from what I believe is a reliable source, a Christian voice. Mr. Green of Christian Voice had these figures published in one of his uh, magazines. They are figures for England and Wales and do not relate to Scotland. And they are figures relating not specifically to murder but to violent crime, which is, if not murder, at least it is related to murder. In 1945, in England and Wales, there were about 5,000 recorded offences of violent crime, 5,000, at the close of the Second World War. Twenty years later, in 1965, there were some 25,000 
recorded offences. That's an increase of five-fold, isn't it? 1975, ten years later, that figure had risen to 75,000 recorded offences. 1985, roughly 125,000 recorded offences. And the last figure I have, I'm afraid, is 1995, and the figure for that year is roughly 200,000 recorded offences. In 50 years, we have gone in this country of England and Wales from a recorded 5,000 recorded offences of violent crime to 200,000. Now, I give you these figures because they show you what we all, I believe, here would readily accept, and that is, as the knowledge of the Bible goes down, so people have a trivialized attitude to the preciousness of life. As people fail to understand what man is and believe less and less in the transcendental truths concerning the soul, heaven, hell, death, judgment, eternity, and all these great themes, so they regard the life of man as more and more trivial. And the sin of murder inevitably increases. And uh, people never think that in attacking another fellow human being, they are defacing and effacing the very image of God in man and consoling their victims immortal soul to an eternity which may be eternal death. My friends, what guilt a murderer brings on himself. He stains his hands with his victim's blood. He wounds his own conscience. He turns his own life into a living nightmare. He hardens his own heart. He turns all society in horror and revulsion against himself. He outrages everybody in the world who knows about him. He brings on himself the vengeance of God and the vengeance, justly so, of the next of kin of the murdered victim. Above all, one day he must give his terrible account to God for this sin. Could any action, therefore, be more loathsome than the sin of murder? Now, fourthly, let me give you some biblical considerations which bear upon certain issues in our own day. The Bible allows for two exceptions, of which I am aware, to the commandment number six, which says, Thou shalt not commit murder. The first of these exceptions is that the government may and ought to put to death the person of the murderer. Of course, I add, after due process of law and a properly conducted trial and defense. And the second exception is of a soldier who may kill in a time of just war. Now, both of these subjects in themselves could be pursued and may indeed maybe you wish to pursue them in the question time. If you wish to follow up the argument with regard to um, the soldier's right to kill, then I would refer you to Luke chapter 3 at verse 14. Now the reference there, you may remember, is to John the Baptist. Luke 3.14. John the Baptist was preaching in his day and giving advice to various categories of people. And amongst the categories of men that came to John the Baptist were soldiers, Roman soldiers. 
And, of course, a Roman soldier's duty, like a modern soldier, was to kill in the right situation. They asked John the Baptist, what shall we do as a sign of their repentance and obedience to God's will? It's very interesting and instructive that John the Baptist did not command them to become pacifist. And this view that I'm expressing now is certainly not peculiar to myself. You will find the great theologians John Calvin, Charles Hodge, and the famous Dutch uh, theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel, among many, many others, argue this case from this text. That John the Baptist's advice is of such a nature to show that it is recognizable that there is a case for just war and it is defensible for a soldier in a just war to kill the enemy. I leave it like that and if you wish to take it up, of course, you're free to do so. I'm talking now, you know, about biblical considerations bearing upon issues in our day. Another issue that I touch on is abortion. (coughs) Abortion. Now, if we may not take away the life of a fellow human being, then this must apply to human beings of all ages and in all states of bodily and mental health. So the question arises, is a child in the womb a human being or something less than a human being? Is a child in the womb, a fetus as we call it, is it a person with an image of God in it, with the knowledge, righteousness and holiness, an immortal soul? Or is a child in the womb nothing more than a bit of a tissue which can be flushed down uh, the drain because it's really not a person at all? Now the Bible has something to say about this and, and it defines what an infant is. One of the crucial teachings here is in Psalm 51, verse 5, which I shall give you, where David tells us this. In sin did my mother conceive me. What he means is this, that when he was first conceived in his mother's womb, at the very instant of conception in the mother's womb, he was a sinner. He doesn't, of course, in any sense mean that his mother's action in becoming pregnant was a sinful action. That was not the case. In, in uh, David's family, David's mother was not, in any sense, immoral. In sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that she was guilty of sin, but that the product of the sexual act which gave rise to the life of David was of such a nature that David, from his very inception in life, his very beginning of life, was that of a sinner. He was conceived a sinner before he was born. Now somebody might say to me, but how on earth can a a fetus in the womb be regarded as sinful? It hasn't yet opened its eyes to speak or used its uh, hands or feet. How can a child in the womb be a sinner? Well, I must explain that. Theologically, it's very easy to understand. It's not our sins that make us sinners. It's the fact that we are sinners that leads us to commit sin. That which makes a child in the womb a sinner is the imputation to it of Adam's first sin. The first sin of the first man is immediately imputed to every child in his mother's womb. So it's constituted, not only a human being, but constituted an immortal soul guilty of sin. 
Now, I can see that that's very offensive to the natural person who doesn't take the Bible seriously. But you and I take it seriously. So, if David tells us that the child in the womb is a sinner, it must follow it is a person. Because no one is guilty or nothing is guilty of being a sinner except a person. So the personhood of the infant child is established from that one verse alone, let alone the whole corpus of scripture. If that is so, then it is clear enough, none has a right to put to death the child in the womb for any other motive except to save the life of the mother when perhaps threatened in a dangerous pregnancy. So I argue. Now a third case that I speak about is suicide and assisted suicide. Euthanasia is sometimes lumped together with this. Suicide and assisted suicide. It is clear from the word of God that no man has a right to put his neighbor to death, nor does he have any right to put himself to death. Because God has said, thou shalt not do murder. And suicide, by definition, being self-murder, is consigning our own soul immediately to eternity and to judgment. At the same time, it is wrong to assist another person in self-murder. We have no warrant to assist a person who is in pain or with a so-called terminal illness in their desire to end their life, either positively by administering a lethal drug or negatively by keeping essential nourishment from them. Suicide, tragically, has become very common amongst young men in our country. It's one of the sad things of our society. Many, many young men are committing suicide. Why it should be is open to surmise, but it is a fact, a tragic, terrible fact, and shows how unhappy society is when it turns away from God. As to euthanasia, the same must be true. Mercy killing, so-called, is of the nature that a patient may be comatose or he may be in a state of permanent vegetation, PVS, I think they called it, or some other medical condition in which the quality of life appears to others to be hopeless. But our duty is to sustain and preserve the life of such patients as long as we can. Now, I do not pretend that all such medical decisions are easy or always straightforward. But our duty in principle is to support, not terminate life as long as we can, even in those whose quality of life seems to us to be very, very frail and fragile. Now, I'm tempted to say a word about cloning, which is coming into the news just now. I'm aware of the fact that medical science has recently entered into a new and ethically controversial area, that of cloning to produce stem cells for the purposes of benefiting benefiting persons suffering from various forms of illness. I do not, however, wish to enter into this highly specialized field of discussion. I am not medically trained myself, and I would be, I think, out of my due order if I attempted to speak on the subject. But in this, as in every related area, experimentation must not cross the threshold of the great divine command, which says, thou shalt not murder. Now, fifthly, let me speak of Christ's elucidation of the moral law. Christ's elucidation 
I'm sorry, Christ's elucidation of the sixth commandment, I mean. The ten commandments of God, as I have said, are moral, not positive. If you'd allow the repetition, I would say it again. The ten commandments of God are not based upon the arbitrary will or selection of God. They are not ideas, as it were, chosen at random by God. They are principles which reflect his own character as holy, just, and good. The Ten Commandments have always existed. There have been strange, aberrant theologians who have imagined that the Ten Commandments didn't exist before the days of Moses, who received them on Mount Sinai. That is rubbish. The Ten Commandments were written in the heart of Adam at his creation. Adam and Eve knew instinctively all the Ten Commandments and what they might need to have elucidated further to them would have been explained to them by God when the Lord God walked with Adam in the cool of the day and in fellowship gave special revelation to our first parents. So Adam and Eve and all those who followed from their uh, union know and have always known something of the character of the Ten Commandments. Even before the fall of Adam, they were known and written instinctively upon their hearts. Now, after the fall of Adam, these commandments were again given to mankind in a written form on those two tables of stone. And when we come to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is one of those subjects that our Lord immediately takes up in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, I have not come to destroy or to abrogate, or to abolish the moral law, but to fulfill them. And these words need to be pondered carefully. There are very important teachings here. Christ means that in instituting the New Testament age, and the New Testament church, and the specifics of the gospel, he has not done away with the claims of the moral law upon our consciences. These commandments, he says, will be enforced at the end of time. He goes very strongly with this point. He says, not a jot nor a tittle shall pass from the law till all things be fulfilled, by which he means that the moral law will exist and continue to claim our obedience right up until the day when the trumpet sounds and time comes to an end and eternity will begin, and a judgment day unfolded. These commandments, he says, are, bi are binding to the end of time. Sadly, there are people in our evangelical churches sometimes who teach and practice antinomian principles that take away from the teaching of, I have just announced to you as being orthodox. The wise Christian will regard himself as bound to keep the Ten Commandments not for salvation, but as the way in which he is to glorify God. Of course we are not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, but we are saved in order to keep the Ten Commandments. That is our rule of life. When we ask the question, how would God have me live as a Christian? The answer is a careful keeping of the commandments of God. Now, Jesus himself makes the point like this. He said, with regard to the moral law and the Ten Commandments, those who break these least commandments and teach other people to break them, they shall be least in the kingdom of God. 
And I believe the only way to interpret that statement is to say that any true born-again Christian who believes that he can play fast and loose with the Ten Commandments in his own private life and that he can teach other people to play fast and loose with the Ten Commandments in their lives, such an evangelical born-again Christian, he will not be lost, of course, but he will lose some of his eternal reward. Whereas those who do the Ten Commandments and teach others to do them and to be careful and diligent, like Psalm 119, with care, keeping the commandments of God and working out their salvation with fear and trembling in terms of these commandments, these, says Christ, will be high in the kingdom of God. And then our Lord makes it clear, except our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. By which, of course, it means that mere outward observance of the commandments is not enough. We have to keep them in spirit. And even then, we cannot rely upon our own goodness as the grounds of acceptance with God. In order to be justified, he says, you must have a perfect righteousness. And the only place we can obtain a perfect righteousness is from him who fulfilled the law and who died for sinners like ourselves in order to be the redeemer of those who cannot of themselves keep the law. And this is our justification. And having said all that by way of introduction, Christ now, as we saw in the reading of Matthew 5, immediately goes on to explain that if we are careless in the way we speak of our brother and speak to our brother, then we may be in danger of hellfire. Strong and terrible words. He that says raka to his brother, he who is angry without a cause against his brother has broken this commandment. The significance of the above teaching is that murder may be committed, at least in a lower degree, by sinful anger on our part, or by sharp, harsh and bitter words and criticisms. The sixth commandment, in other words, like all the commandments, is spiritual and refers not simply to our actions, but to our innermost thoughts, moods, emotions, reactions, and attitudes, as well as to our outward actions. God will, in a day of judgment, take an account of what you and I do, but also he will take an account of what you and I think and have said, and of our inward states of mood and emotion. So it is, in God's eyes, possible for us to murder, inverted commas, our neighbor in our minds or with our words. And Christ warns that a man might go to hell at last for uttering furious words from an uncontrolled bad temper. So he says, he who says raka to his brother is in danger of hell fire. Wouldn't it be refreshing if more preachers spoke plain language in our generation? The old Anglo-Saxon that the old Bible used to give, and instead of these politically correct phrases, that the person who does something sinful will suffer some terminally serious consequences, as if people in the pews knew what that is. No, no, says Christ, it's not terminally serious consequences. Hellfire, he says. 
And, my dear friends, if he talks like that, how much more should we tremble in case we be guilty of these very things? The fact is, this teaching reminds you and me, as Christians, that we all need God's forgiveness. We have all committed murder, if not literally with our hands. Thank God, at least, we have with our minds and with our tongues. And we all need to humble ourselves because we might, any one of us, have committed murder were it not for the restraint of God's common grace and the way in which he has humbled us into submission when our tempers flew off the handle in moments of fury and of anger. Let him that is without sin cast the first stone. All the commandments of God then bring us to this state of humiliation. Now I come to my final heading and then I shall stop. The sixth heading is this. This is the biblical case for saying that the murderer ought to be sentenced to capital punishment. The first biblical statement on the subject is Genesis 9-6, as I mentioned earlier, and this has never been repealed. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, said God in Genesis 9-6, by him, by man shall his blood be shed. Now that is not, that is not, my friends, part of the ceremonial law. Furthermore, dear friends, that is not a part of the judicial law. Those words were issued before the days of Moses and they were given for the whole of mankind. Now, during the Mosaic period from Moses to Christ, as I mentioned earlier, capital punishment was prescribed for a wide range of sins. But these penalties have been mercifully removed by God. However, it is clear from Romans 13, 1 to 4, that even still today, in the thinking of the Apostle Paul, and therefore under inspiration in the teaching of God, capital punishment is still the valid penalty for those who commit the sin of murder. Says Paul, the magistrate, the government, the supreme authority in a land, the minister of God, he beareth not the sword in vain. Romans 13, 1 to 4. That is to say, those to whom God has given authority to govern in the nation, our political leaders as we call them today, they have from God delegated authority to put to death a man or a woman who after due process of law and a just trial are found guilty of murder. And God has not abrogated that and all the objections of men and women are no answer to what God has revealed. And when the Apostle Paul is himself a captor in the presence of uh, Roman officials, he announces to them, if I am guilty of anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die, he said. And therefore he endorses this doctrine he gives here, that the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is a symbol, my dear friends, of capital punishment and death. The rod is a symbol for corporal punishment, but the sword of capital punishment. If you wish to study the question of capital punishment, you couldn't do better than to read Professor John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, done by InterVarsity Press 
Um, I'll give you a date for that, which I've got somewhere in my papers. 1957, Tyndale Press, 1957. It may have been reprinted and certainly deserves to be. It's an excellent treatise uh, dealing with a whole range of subjects of which this is one. But now I must conclude. My time is up. The penalty for murder has been significantly changed and lowered in this country and many other countries in post-war years. I'm speaking now of England and Wales. Before 1957, capital punishment was the sentence in this country for murder. In 1957, however, the Homicide Act changed that. Now it was weakened to this, that capital punishment for murder uh, was to be the penalty. Capital punishment was to be the penalty for murder by a firearm or for killing a policeman. But there was another act came in in 1965 which stipulated that life imprisonment would be the penalty. Not always for life, too. And then in 1967, the Abortion Act came in which gave certain um, permissions for those who required abortion, they thought, for other than reasons of absolute necessity. Well, you and I have lived through a tremendous escalation of violence. We have heard of Soham and what happens to little girls if they're not careful. We've heard of Dr. Shipman and what even medical personnel can do. We read of guns in our cities almost every day. Some young woman is abducted, abused, killed. It is high time that those in authority reconsider the claims of God's word, which undoubtedly states that the only adequate penalty for murder is a capital sentence. Thank you. What is the question? The question is, when do we engage in a preemptive strike? Do you get that question? I've got the, the, the just war um, with um, Augustine's uh, principles, six principles, but, say Mugabe, killing his own people, do we go in or not? That's a long question. Have you got the gist of it, you think, Mr Roberts? Yes, I think I've got the gist of it. Thank you. Now, I need to say things which are clear and, as far as I can, biblical. And clearly there are some aspects of your question, sir, which are very difficult for any wise person to analyze. There are times inevitably when the justice of a particular war is very hard to evaluate. One of the factors which we must take into account, surely, in any assessment of a war is who is the aggressor and who are the aggrieved. And if we are to be fair in our response to the aggressive actions of other nations, we must also balance the degree of force which we are to use in order to uh, uh, try to redress the evil that has been done. Now, all I can say is that there is, in principle, such a thing as a just war. And I think it is very difficult for us in a situation like this to agree on all the 
different aspects that are going to enter into the assessment of whether a war is just or not just. If we were to be talking about, let us say, the Holocaust, which you mentioned, or the Second World War, I personally wouldn't hesitate to say that we had no moral alternative than to go to war against Hitler. It's a pity we didn't go a bit earlier. It's a pity we left it till he went into uh, um, Czechoslovakia and then Poland. If we'd have gone a bit earlier, we would have stopped it. And we would have maybe stopped and prevented the Holocaust. So that's one of the factors which must enter into the minds of people like President Bush. He's well aware of that. We were slow in going to the Second World War. Nobody wants war except a madman. It's absolute lunacy to choose war if there's, another, if there's any alternative. Um, if you say to me, what should Mr. Bush have done in connection with this war in Iraq? Well, that's a very controversial issue. If you want my personal view, I think he did the right thing. But I'm perfectly prepared to believe that uh, uh, many aspects of what they did were flawed and could be faulted. But um, I don't think any living man could give you an absolutely yes, no, clear, dogmatic answer to aspects of your question, sir. But simply would have to substantiate this, I think, that there is such a thing as a just war. And if people are conscientiously unable to subscribe to a particular war as being just, if they're armed servicemen, then they would have to become conscientious objectors. And that's the best I can do on what is a rather full question. What, what evidence do you have that the judicial law is uh, no longer uh, no longer applies? The question is, what evidence have we that the judicial <coughs> law no longer applies? Is that the question? Yes, I'm very grateful for that question because it is a most important one. First of all, the nature of the judicial law is such that it was clearly appointed by God to relate to the theocracy, that is, to the Jewish state. The state of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament was not simply a nation, but it was a theocracy. That is to say, it had the unique privilege of being God's state. He was the head of state in a unique way. Now, that ceased to be the case once the day of Pentecost had come. And therefore, uh, our uh, forefathers who wrote, let us say, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and those who are in the Puritan tradition, Calvin and others like that, they took the view that for the most part, the judicial law died when the day of Pentecost came, simply because the Jewish state as such uh, has now ceased to be a theocracy. It is no more so. God is building his church in New Testament times in all the nations under the sun. Um, and... Uh, Part of the answer, again, is that the prescriptions and the arrangements made under the terms of the judicial law are clearly, in some cases, quite inappropriate for any other nation. Cities of refuge, for instance, would be a case in point. And uh, the way in which uh, certain sins were investigated, like the, a suspicious husband who thought that his wife had been unfaithful to him, um, there were certain prescriptions there in terms of the judicial law as to how she was to be investigated. And uh, there was a supernatural and miraculous factor at work there. Her belly would swell and her thigh would rot. Now that, we believe, was confined to that period and to that time. And uh, 
So uh, the way in which it is normally put in confessions of faith is that your judicial law has passed away except for the general equity thereof. In other words, what I can say is that elements of the judicial law which remain are degrees of consanguinity and affinity, which means that we're only allowed to marry outside those close relationships. You can't marry your sister, you can't marry your, your mother, you can't marry your auntie, I don't think. You can't marry certain persons who are too closely related to you or to your spouse if you've already had a wife and she's now deceased. So we say that these laws of consanguinity and affinity, they are still valid to this day. And indeed our law in Britain is still, I think, to that effect. You're not allowed, it's called incest, to, to have a sexual relationship within a certain degree of close affinity. But um, I have to admit uh, to the questioner that in America there is a movement called Reconstructionism, and uh, they do believe that these uh, laws of the judicial law um, corpus of law in the Old Testament ought still to be enforced and they would have government still to put the adulterer to death. Um, but that generally is the argument. Uh, Douglas Haig, uh, I'd like to just ask a question about uh, Matthew 5.19, which you referred to, Mr. Roberts. Anyone who breaks yes. one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I think you said they will lose some of, of their eternal reward. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase before. Right. Uh, I'd be very grateful if you would just expand on it. I'd like to understand more about it. Yes, thank you. <coughs> Did you all hear the question? Then I won't repeat it. Well, again, thank you for that question. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that the moral law is eternal and perpetual and therefore binding upon the consciences of uh, his own people, believing, Christian, born again, justified Christians in the New Testament age, as much as it ever was binding upon the consciences of Old Testament uh, Jews. Now, he goes on to say that if born-again people, if they break the Ten Commandments and teach other people to do so, that they will be called least in the kingdom of God. It's obvious he's talking about Christians because other people would not be in any sense in the kingdom of God, either in time or in eternity. So he's talking about justified, born-again, saved men and women. But he cautions them by saying that they will be regarded in eternity as least in the kingdom of God, which must mean that they will not be held in such high esteem nor so highly rewarded by God in the day of judgment as those who have both done and taught the commandments which he has just uh, announced that he regards and teaches us as binding on the consciences of Christians. So there's only one way left in which we can interpret that, and that is that in heaven there are degrees of reward. All Christians, of course, will be saved and go to glory, but they will not all have the same degree of glory. Some will shine like the sun, others like the moon, some like the stars. And uh, some will be closer to God in glory, others not so close. All will be perfectly satisfied just as a thimble is full when it's full uh, and a keg which stands six feet high is full when it's full. They're both full when they're full and therefore both satisfied. But of course the keg holds vastly more than the thimble. So it is among Christians in glory. Some will have vastly more glory than others. But all will be satisfied and all will be full and all will be happy. But some will have more than others. Be to those people. 
The question is about Christians who've got contact with convicted murderers. What should our attitude be? Is that the gist of the question? Your attitude should be that in your mind you say to yourself, this man is my neighbour or my colleague at work. He has committed murder for which he has been sentenced to punishment, but an inadequate punishment. He deserves not to be living, but in the society in which we are, he has been allowed to live. In your mind you say he has no right to live. But of course you can't take the matter further than that. It wouldn't be right for you to take the law into your own hands and and, uh, do anything by way of punishment to him, obviously. But if you have any opportunity to do so, obviously you would want to do what with him what you would do with others. You would try to win him to Christ and to faith and to salvation. Because if a person who has been guilty of murder and has been given an inadequate sentence is then converted, he himself should agree that he deserved to die. But that in God's providence, that was not his lot. But he should uh, realize that that is what he deserved. But if you can win his soul to Christ, he will himself pass sentence on himself. And of course, what the state fails to do in this world, God will certainly do in the world to come. But if a man who is guilty of murder is not committed to a capital sentence but is allowed to live, then of course there's nothing we personally can do about it except do what we do with others, and that is try to win them to faith in Christ. If they come to him, then happy they will be indeed. In the Old Testament, David, a man after God's own heart, committed a deliberate act of murder. Yes. I'm referring to Uriah the Hittite. Yes. He had the opportunity to receive forgiveness and to repent. Yes. Should that not apply today? The question, David, the murderer, had an opportunity to repent. Should that not apply today? Is that the question? Yes, I think I understand exactly what you're saying. If God so forgave King David when he engineered the death of Uriah the Hittite, ought we not to regard that as something normative today, so that others today who commit murder also should be reprieved of their capital sentence? I would have to say no. David, I believe, was an exceptional case. God, of course, has the right to waive his own laws if he wishes to. We are bound by the laws of God, but he is not bound by his own laws. He has dispensing powers as being the absolute sovereign. And when Nathan the prophet came to David, and David felt convicted of his sin, as you remember he did, Nathan said to him, Thou shalt not die. And this was a peculiar and special act of God in his case, which is not normative. He deserved to die, and he knew that. But instead God mitigated the severity of his punishment and gave him something which is like a living death that he would have trouble in his family which would go on and on all throughout his life. And that, as it sense, was his punishment. But it was a peculiar case and it was not intended by God to be um, an example to how we should treat the murderer today. And the answer I would give to you if you're, if you're uncertain about that is we have uh, the clear statement of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 uh, concerning the power of the sword which is in the hand of the 
civil magistrate today. This question is about capital punishment as a deterrent. Now, I've always argued for that. But, and when I listen to your figures and statistics, it seems correct. But when you talk about God's justice and punishment, does deterrent come into it? Is deterrence a factor in the whole issue I'm so glad that that question is asked for this reason, that it was in my notes right at the end, and I had an eye for the clock, and I knew that uh, my chairman is a forbearing gentleman, but that I must not provoke his wrath, so I wanted to curtail some of my remarks. There are three attitudes that we may have towards punishment. One is deterrence, which means that we punish in order that others may go straight, if possible. The second is that we punish out of a true sense of the desert. We refer to this as retribution. We punish a person in the first instance, we say, because he deserves it. And there's a third form of punishment in which we are trying to correct and to cure the uh, wickedness or the weakness of the person who is... uh, inclined to commit crime. Now, all three forms really have their place in a um, legal system. But the, the, the foremost element in punishment is punishment because the guilty person deserves it, not because if I punish him and he'll be so scared he won't do it. That comes into it. It's all true. I mean, if I see a motorist stopped by the police because he's going at 50 when he should be doing 30 and I'm driving behind him, I'd be quite inclined to reduce my speed. (laughs) We're all speaking out of a felt sense of experience here, aren't we? That's true, we do. But the principal reason why we punish people is not deterrence. It is retribution. And that's what is meant by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and so on. Christ, when he says that uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth are not appropriate in Christian behavior, means that that's not the teaching that we are to follow in our personal relationships. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We are to forgive those who do us harm. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not for personal relationships at all. It is the standard whereby governments ought to punish criminals. So if I knock out a man's eye... My eye should be knocked out. That should be done to me, which I have done to you or to him. In other words, the penalty 